John chapter 17, verse 1 to 26. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I gave me, I gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify, <laughs> glorify me in your presence with glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew you, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even I as, as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will be, believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the world of the Lord. Thank you, Caitlin, uh, for joining us online and doing the scripture reading for us. Uh, so this morning is my privilege and
joy to introduce uh, Dr. Brian Cooper is one of my professors and Pastor Howard's professors at Acts Seminaries, and he's here today with his wife Connie as well, so welcome. Uh, thanks for coming all the way from Mission uh, this morning on this rainy uh, Sunday. Uh, Dr. Brian Cooper is the Associate Professor of Theology at Acts Seminaries out at Trinity Western University. He's also the Director of Student Development with the uh, MB Seminary. And every Christian, he believes every Christian is a theologian. Uh, Brian's passion is to help believers do theology well and to understand how to engage cultural issues, theological and historical text and scripture deeply in order to meaningfully bring kingdom values to bear on their context and impact their world for Jesus Christ. Brian's hobbies are roasting and brewing coffee, uh, mine too. Uh, mechanical pocket watches, not so much mine, <laughs> uh, and fountain pens. I uh, know nothing about those topics at all, actually. Uh, for exercise, he enjoys cycling uh, on his cross-country ski trainer and playing softball and hockey. And he's also a bit of a car nut, a backyard mechanic, and I believe you have a motorcycle as well. Uh, so with that, let's give a very warm LLC welcome to Dr. Brian Cooper. Thank you very much for having me. Wait a minute. Here I am. I don't know if taking the mask off is an improvement or not, but it makes me, at least my glasses don't fog up and I can see my notes. I'm, I am glad to be here. I'm glad to reconnect with Pastor Doug and with Howard. It was, it's a privilege to see them. It's a privilege to come here and, and fellowship with you this morning. And we had a delightful drive in from Mission. We had good traffic. The weather is not so great, but hey, it's Vancouver. We passed, we, we drove up, Van, up, up Fraser Street and my wife was pretty sure she saw somebody having a picnic. Ah, that's pretty weird, but if you don't do things in the rain in Vancouver, you probably aren't going to do them at all. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to the text here, and I, wanna, I want us to, to, to look at John chapter 17, because I think there's some really powerful things in there that help us understand how to live as a community, a community of faith, a community on mission. But I, I, I want to tell you something about me a little bit, just a very little bit. I was a pastor's son. I grew up pretty much in church, meaning that if there was something going on in church, I was probably there, in the building at very least. And certainly, if it was on a Sunday, oh yeah, for sure I was there. And I'm old enough to remember that we're talking about a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. Now, the Sunday evening one was, was tough a lot of the time, because when I was growing up, Wonderful World of Disney was on TV at 6 o'clock, okay? And we had to leave for church by 6.30 at the latest. So, and there were, we didn't have PVRs in those days. Some people had VCRs, but we didn't have one. And so I grew up watching about the first half of every Disney episode that aired in the 70s and the early 80s. Now, if on the rare occasion when I ever thought to ask, why it was we had to go to church so much, why we couldn't miss just once, the reply was probably a quick quote of Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25 that says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. My dad could just, on a, at the drop of a hat, recite that. But funny thing was, that, that verse didn't really answer my question. But it, was, it really was kind of a moot point. Because 
the Bible says we're supposed to go to church. At least that's what not giving up meeting together means. And at least that's how it was explained to me. So if the Bible says it, it doesn't really matter whether or not you understand it. Certainly it doesn't matter whether or not you like it. You do it. No matter what. Unless you were completely incapacitated. And so we did. I mean, I lived in Winnipeg. We had church on nights when it was a blizzard. You were afraid to set foot outside. We still had church. Like, my dad was hardcore. The interesting thing in my experience, though, I'm happy to say, is that going to church wasn't really a chore for my family and me. That's a good thing, because at one point, we were church planting on Sunday evenings. We had church in our living room. That could have been awkward. But instead, we, we valued our time together, both when we were meeting formally and in the other informal times of interaction. Now, you might be thinking, well, but I was fortunate, and that is true. But it's made me wonder about whether my family just happened to capture lightning in a bottle or if there's something to this that ought to reflect the experience of more believers, or even all believers, and that's what I want to talk about. Let's fast forward about 40 years. That's how old I am. Really old. But by God's grace, I teach theology now in the hopes of imparting the same joy about thinking about being a Christian that I've found. That's a whole story in itself for another day. But a couple of things have dawned on me as I've thought theologically about church. The first thing that I'm convinced is important is that whatever good comes from being a part of a church community or by virtue of being a Christian disciple, period, comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that we come to be believers in Jesus Christ. It is only by the Spirit that we are made new as citizens of the kingdom of God, members of the body of Christ. None of that comes from what we accomplish on our own strength, how hard we work, how much we learn, how well we organize, or by any other means that derives exclusively from us. The second thing I realized is that what I was taught about going to church and helping others there, because Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says to, is missing something important. What's more, if I think only in terms of participating along the lines of what I heard, I might end up doing so out of a sense of duty and possibly arising arriving at the conclusion that good things happen at church and they're dependent on me. Now, especially in light of the first insight about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I know that that is not true. So I need to rethink this. You may have heard language that Christian theology is Trinitarian, meaning that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and yet one. You may wonder, what has that got to do with the topic at hand? I think it has a lot to do with it, and not because it sounds fancy. Simply put, I believe that thinking about God as a perfect community of Father, Son, and Spirit can help us realize not just how, but why we are called to be a community, to be deeply interconnected parts of one another's lives. Now, you may be thinking, the Bible doesn't even mention the word Trinity. So isn't this a bit more like gobbledygook from somebody who spent too many years in school? How is this even practical? Well, my friends, good theology is always practical. And maybe the fact that it took me this many years to figure it out means that I'm a slow learner. Be that as it may, my hope is that it makes sense to you much faster. So let's look at John chapter 17. It's known as the high priestly prayer 
the prayer Jesus prayed before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. He had a lot of stuff on his mind, let me tell you. In this prayer, we see Jesus' awareness of the gravity of his mission and his intercession for his followers in anticipation of his return to the Father. As we read what Jesus says, we're going to gain some insights that help us understand Christian community and live it better. So the first thing that Jesus prays in verse 1 is that the Father would glorify him. Now this may seem like a selfish thing, kind of, for Jesus to pray. And the reason for that is that glory has come to be associated with seeking praise and recognition for one's own benefit. You know, a glory grabber. Even if someone doesn't seek it personally, glory usually involves receiving some sort of renown or honor or acknowledgement. That's the dictionary definition. But that's not how glory works when Jesus talks about it. In Jesus' teaching, glory is still connected to greatness, but remember what he says in Luke 22, verse 26, that greatness is not connected to lording authority over others, but rather self-sacrificing service. Jesus isn't seeking accolades here. Rather, he is embracing the call to submit himself to the Father by willingly going to die on the cross. The demonstration of Jesus' glory resides in his embrace of selfless service in submission to uh, to the Father. This is just one example of how Jesus reveals that God's priorities invert our human expectations about things like greatness, power, and effectiveness. The glorification that exists between the Father and the Son is between the Father who gave up his Son and the Son who gave up himself. The goal of both the Father and the Son was for people to have eternal life, us, eternal life, reconciliation with the Father. Neither one was seeking personal gain in this. That's the first takeaway about living in community. We glorify God and one another by making it our priority to give to others, to submit to others, rather than seeking our own way. What this entails is freely giving the blessings, spiritual or otherwise, that we have received in Christ. Jesus shared what the Father gave him to share. What this doesn't mean is that we're doing God's will only when we have worked ourselves into exhaustion or worse. It is a call to community, not oblivion. Rather, remember that we are sharing the blessings that we have received in tangible ways. In the next section, in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays that the Father will protect them in the power of the name that the Father and Son share. Verse 11. In the process, Jesus makes a powerful statement in verse 10 that all I have is yours, all you have is mine. This reflection of the harmony between the Father and the Son is not a throwaway. This is the template for the way that Christians are to pattern ourselves in community. Just as we don't seek our own interests first, we don't seek our own possessions or our own gain first. The first Christians got this pretty clearly. Acts 2 verse 44 reports that the first believers had everything in common. They were more interested in making sure that no one was in need than they were in ensuring that they were prosperous. The call to share everything we have 
is not rooted in a call to poverty or a call to simply feel sorry for others. It comes from the fact that there is complete community in the Godhead. All that is the Father's is the Son's, and all that is the Son's is the Father's. That's pretty powerful, and it's pretty challenging. The early Anabaptist communities in the 16th century took this pretty seriously, enough that it got them into trouble with the governing authorities. They were accused of practicing community of goods, quote-unquote, meaning that they believed that ownership of goods was in common for them. Some did this very explicitly. The first Hutterite community literally pooled all their money and possessions and created a common purse that supplied the needs of the group. To this day, Hutterite communities do not practice private ownership of property. They live communally. But even other communities who lived more normal-looking lives were subject to the same accusation. Why? Because they shared their possessions freely with those who were in need, so much so that they made sure that no one's needs went unmet. But why was this controversial? The authorities wanted to exercise ownership over the goods of common people as part of their, what they called their divinely instituted roles. And they realized that the Anabaptist convictions about property in the kingdom of God was a threat to the conventional order. And it was certainly a threat to them and their power. Not because of antagonism, much less hostility. Rather, it represented an uncompromising desire to embody faithful community right down to the level of their material possessions. They were trying to be truly one and completely faithful. And despite persecution, they persisted. How? I think it happened because sharing of this kind, if it's allowed to take hold, is a profoundly unifying and transforming force. The result of this call to share and look out for one another is that God welds us, not into a conglomerate of individuals, but into a unified body. Talk about acting your way into a new reality. God's Spirit makes us into a new, unified collective. That is at the heart of what Jesus means when he expresses his desire at the end of verse 11, that they, his disciples, may be one as Father and Son are one. Now, this is mind-blowing when we think about it. We, as Christians, are called to incarnate, to embody the same unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Can you imagine this? I, don't, I can't even conceive of how this could be apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it comes as no surprise that Jesus goes on in acknowledging the challenges that his disciples will face to use language that says that his disciples are not of this world twice in verses 14 and verse 16. They have been sanctified by the word of the Father. This language harkens back to Jesus' words earlier in John, in John 8, 23, where he says to his opponents that you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Back in John chapter 3, where Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says to him, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The expression born again is literally born from above. This identifies the ministry of the spirit in the life of Jesus, and it identifies the Spirit's role in us, individually and collectively. We are made one by the ministry of the Spirit. 
The last section of John 17 blows me away for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is a place, one of the few in the Bible, where Jesus prays specifically for you. You and me, us. Look, verse 20 says this, My prayer is not for them alone, not just the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Did you catch that? Those who will believe in Jesus through the disciples' message. That's us. We've believed in Jesus through the the disciples' message. Right there, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for you. Long before you knew him, long before you were ever born, Jesus is praying for you. That is amazing. And here, Jesus prays for unity with greater specificity. He says, he asks in verse 21 that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, in Trinitarian theology, Pastor Doug and and Howard will remember this, there's a technical word called perichoresis. You can use it when you get home, impress your friends. What it means is mutual indwelling. The church fathers were intent on conveying that if, if in some way you could sample a piece of God and see what it was made of, you would never end up with a piece that was of the Father alone or of the Son alone or the Spirit alone. The Godhead is not partially Father and partially Son and partially Spirit. If you managed to cut God up in pieces, every one of them would be Father, Son, and Spirit each distinctly present, yet inseparable from one another. Now, I I know that's an example that can't really do justice to the depth of, of the reality, but hopefully you get my point. In terms of what God does, what this kind of unity means is that what any member of the Trinity does at any time is reflective of the common work of all. There is complete harmony. No one is working at anything for just oneself alone. There's no self-interest. There's no side projects. And that is how Jesus prayed for us to be. He prayed that no one would ever be working just for himself or herself. We're working together always. And there's more. Jesus called the Father, Father. Now, that doesn't sound very earth-shattering, but think about this in context. The Father was not like the other deities of the ancient Near East who couldn't be approached up close. The fact that Jesus calls the Father, Father, indicates a revolutionary opportunity for intimacy that is made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And nobody else talked in language like that in those days. It it, it creates a new scenario in which closeness is the desired norm for the new community, so much so that it may intrude upon some of our personal expectations about maintaining distance and privacy. In Jesus' prayer, we are definitely not talking about an emphasis on personal space. This is the part that might be the most challenging for some of us. Life together, in the Trinitarian way, involves being close to one another in a way that we flat out cannot do on our own. And it implies a lot more than getting within two meters of one another. The sort of community I'm talking about is not simply doing life together. I know that phrase gets tossed around a lot to describe what's supposed to be a good thing. 
I know that people who use this language mean well, and their desire is that people develop a closeness based on spending time together that overcomes fear of vulnerability. But what it often means in practice is that people have as much community or as much closeness as they're comfortable with, which often is not a lot. Jesus isn't talking about as much community as you want or as much community as you think you need or even as much as other people want or need. In fact, subjective perceptions are not the way we discern this matter at all. Jesus is talking about community that brings us as close as father and son are, given that his desire is that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Verses 22 and 23. Those are Jesus' words. If we desire to embody faithfulness in terms of our relationships as part of the body of Christ, we need to acknowledge that our comfort levels are not reliable indicators of success. Success in God's eyes will mean that personal space and privacy will likely need to be renegotiated in light of greater priorities. It will mean that people will know things about you that might sometimes make you embarrassed, perhaps even ashamed. Here's a fun fact. They probably already do, and they love you anyway. The closeness God desires for us comes not because we force ourselves on one another, but because we willingly draw near to one another and for one another. This closeness does not supersede what Jesus taught about personal conduct and relationships, but it does help to put that teaching into its proper perspective. But most of all, it means that once we get past the difficult details, the best is yet to come. There are blessings awaiting us that we can't even imagine. Think of the joy of the eternal harmony of Father, Son, and Spirit. That is the goal. And what's not to like about that? Here's the flip side, the part that is frequently overlooked. The closeness that Jesus is talking about is a wonderful closeness that brings us satisfaction and even comfort. It's something we were made to experience. Remember the theme song from that 80s sitcom, Cheers? The song talks about how in the face of life's annoyances and troubles, it's good to go where everybody knows your name. They know you, what you're going through, what you need, and they're glad that you came. In the song, your friends are people you can be real with rather than putting on a front. In the song, they commiserate with you. In the Christian community, it's even better. It's everything people hope for because it's what we were created for. But it's also more because we are transformed into Christ-likeness through the Spirit. People are not only real, they're intimately friendly. People are not only glad, they are truly joyful. And people not only commiserate, we bear one another's burdens. This is what God intended for us. On a similar note, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that then I shall know fully even as I am fully known, he's not just talking about information or knowledge. He is talking about intimacy with God, really knowing God. And that intimacy comes in the context of drawing close to one another. If that closeness seems a little bit scary, it might be because we've never experienced it. 
but I'm inclined to believe that it brings relief far more than risk. It comes at a cost, to be sure, but in light of what Jesus has said here, tell me it isn't worth it. It's easy for us to revert to thinking about relationships in terms of duty, but that misses the point of what Jesus is praying for. He knows the joy and freedom that comes from community. Remember that community means unity together. So he prays it for our blessing. And he knows that we need God's power to make it happen, which is why he refers to our being not of this world. Jesus' prayer is a reminder to rely on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has promised for our comfort in John 14 and for our empowerment in Acts chapter 1. Jesus knew that the only way the fledgling community of disciples was going to survive was to stick close to his example and message and to stick together. There is nothing about being a disciple that involves going it alone. And in a culture where one of the major crises affecting people is loneliness, we are living in a loneliness epidemic. How amazing is it that we have been granted access to the transforming power of God to create community. When we think about it, we realize that the grand purpose for which we were created was not simply to relate to God, but to enjoy the blessing of the relationships in the Trinity that have existed from eternity past. God was so blessed that he created us to extend the circle and share the blessing. And now we have the the same opportunity. It is really important for us to think of the Trinitarian relationships we've been talking about not as a closed loop, but rather in relation to the missional activity of God revealed in Scripture that provides us with context for understanding what God's like. The circle of Father, Son, and Spirit have never been an exclusive thing into which others were unwelcome. In fact, what we see about God's work in creating humans in the world, covenanting with people, and reconciling them to himself in Christ suggests that God's Trinitarian community is one that actively seeks out people to draw into its fellowship. God has creatively devised new ways to try to draw the humans God created in his image into relationship with himself. I think this is a particularly instructive insight for Christians wondering how to live Christian community in light of the seemingly oppressive weight of pandemic restrictions that seem to make community difficult, even impossible. How can Christians enjoy true community when it's so difficult even to meet together? By the way, I'm not assuming that your community is struggling with this issue, but I know that many are, including mine. So in case it's helpful, I offer these insights. To appreciate how it might be possible, it's necessary to separate the things we do as a community from our identity as a community. Here's what I mean. You'll remember that back at the beginning of this message, I talked about how our little church plant met in my parents' living room on Sunday evenings. We sang, we prayed, we studied, studied scripture together, and it was a wonderful time. But community did not stop when the service ended. In our case, we con- continued very deliberately by moving the gathering from the living room to the dining room. We sat around the table and we played rook together. Anybody here know how to play rook? Is that a thing anymore? Maybe not. You're looking at me like, mm. It was a, a card game. Uh, virtually everybody joined in, and we had a wonderful time. Experiences like that taught me that community can happen as much in the context of unconventional interactions as in the context of conventional ones. 
Living as communities that reflect the glory of the Trinity is not related to structure or schedules or programs or size. All of those elements of our churches serve the larger priority of reflecting the kind of relationship that Jesus talks about in John 17. And especially in a time of COVID, it's important to remember that perfect love is the model for our community. This perfect love casts out all fear. That's a timely message. Christian communities that have made a profound impact through history have been the ones that were so preoccupied with living the mission of the kingdom of God that they had no time to worry about what might happen to them. And so it should be with us. But do we really believe this? The example of those who have selflessly worked to create Christian community in the past, often at great personal cost, gives me hope that there continue to be opportunities for community building, which is effectively what the mission of the church is, that are not only creative, but also unaffected by restrictions. I have had wonderful missional conversations in my neighborhood on the street, in driveways, at the grocery store. Gatherings among believers should be intentional, but they do not always need to be formal. The forms and programs that characterize our church life together are important. Please don't misunderstand me. But it has not always been the way we do things, nor does it need to be. It may be that God is using the pandemic to confront us with things about our churches that need to change and presenting us with opportunities to shift our focus in new and more faithful ways to embody kingdom and community for our neighborhoods. I know of a church that decided to sell its building in order to free resources to foster community in new ways, including by freeing resources that would otherwise be used to sustain the building and programs of the church. Instead, this group decided to give them away in support of other ministries. Now, I don't know what the innovations that might emerge will look like, and I'm certainly not trying to make any suggestions here. But I don't think we should feel threatened by what circumstances seem to demand of us. God's communities of mission will not be thwarted by anything apart from the faithlessness of their members. The fact that we can be used by God to incarnate community is amazing. The fact that we can enjoy some of the benefits of true community now is even better. May we let Jesus' prayer penetrate our hearts so that we may be part of the answer to the prayer Jesus prayed on our behalf. May we be one as Father and Son are one, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then, everyone in the world will know that God sent Jesus and has loved them, even as the Father has loved His Son. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for doing in us and through us what only You can do by Your Spirit. May you have free reign to use us as you please. May we be attuned to the ministry of your spirit. May we seek as the desire of our heart to be the community of faith and mission that you would have us be in the place where you have put us for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.